so great to see you. Happy Easter to you. Really glad that you're here. As I think most of you know, the Easter holiday is the most significant event on the Christian calendar. And so I'm really grateful that you're here, and I pray that it's going to be a meaningful time for you. We actually organized the sermon for today to line up in a larger series that we've been uh, working through called Conversations with Jesus. And what we've wanted to do is look at what Jesus talks about with people. And so this week we're going to be looking at what he talks about. One of the things that he talks about was his death and resurrection, this thing that we celebrated Easter. What we want to focus on in particular in that is how did Jesus respond Sorry, uh, how did people respond to what Jesus said about his death and resurrection? Uh, to answer this question, we want to look at a passage that isn't uh, normal for an Easter service, but it's, it answers the question, how do people view, when they think about Jesus dying and raising from the dead, how do they view that? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses uh, 20, 21, 23. So has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, what a fascinating thing to say. Uh, do you think the world has some, some ideas? I mean, you know, it's shocking just what technology does. And people have some great thoughts, the advancements made in psychology and mapping the brain, those kinds of things. And then the Bible says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. But that seems to be the criteria for what makes something wise or not, is whether it leads to knowing God. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for each person who's here. We pray that this would be a time of connection with you, that it wouldn't simply be a matter of singing some songs and listening to somebody talk, but that this would be a time where people would know you, connect with you, and find a new and living relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does society today, as well as you know, back in the time when Jesus lived, what does society think about Jesus? There seems to be two things that summarize how people view Jesus. The first is that, and his, his death and resurrection, the first, that he's a fool, and the second, that it's insulting. So uh, let's unpack those two words. The first thing is that they look at Jesus dying on a cross, and they go, that's just foolish. Like, that is a really dumb idea. If you want to be a God who rules the world and has everybody, you know, follow you, it's, you know, don't die, you want to organize an army. You want to have lots of power and influence. You want to demonstrate your greatness. You want to be, uh, you know, somebody who's attractive and has their own YouTube channel. And, I mean, you got to do something that's going to get people to notice you. And so they look at what Jesus decides to do, and it just makes no sense, especially if you're an all-powerful God. Why would you decide, as the culmination of your life and ministry, to die? The second thing that people thought of him is that it's insulting that Jesus would say that he's going to die for their sins. Uh, it implies 
that you and I are doing things that are so horrible, it requires somebody to die on behalf of us in order to have those sins paid for, that we could be in a relationship with God. That's drastic. And so people look at the cross and they go, you know, lighten up. Like, I'm not that bad. Like, really, you don't have to die for me. I mean, I'll say I'm sorry. We'll have a fist pump. It'll be all good. But Jesus says, no, I, I, I have to do something more dramatic than that in order for me to be in relationship with you. It's really quite shocking. So I think this is still true today, where we look at Jesus dying on the cross, and it seems like an overreaction. And it seems a little bit foolish, and if we think about it a little bit longer, maybe even a little bit insulting. And so I have a hunch that as you and I live our daily lives, we're not thinking that the crux of our life, the reason why we're alive today, or if you would call yourself a Christian, have a, a living relationship with him, that it's all about this death and resurrection. I don't think we think much about it. Kind of once a year, maybe. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he decide to die from the sins, for our sins? Verse 21 in this passage answers it. It says, uh, he died so that we could know God. Now, this word know means more than kind of an intellectual knowledge. It doesn't simply mean, oh, yeah, I know who God is, or oh, yeah, I've heard some facts about him. This word is an intimate word. It describes knowing his heart, knowing his will, being changed by a relationship with him. So here's the idea. Jesus says that the only way that you can have a living, dynamic knowledge of God, relationship with him, is if I would die for you. So he's somehow connecting the idea of a death with the idea of a living relationship. Fascinating thought. Now, when you think about having a relationship with somebody, is that what you first think of? Okay, if I want a relationship with you, somebody's going to have to die. You know, what? <laughs> draw the short straw or whatever it is. Like, is that what you think is the foundation for a relationship? Well, I would venture to say yes. I've been thinking about this. I've been a Christian for, I think, 46 years or like a long time. Uh, is embarrassingly long. And I've been, a, I, I've been married to my wife, Debbie, for 33 years. That's a good chunk of time. I've been a pastor for about 28 years. When I think of the people who have been in our home, I, we've had dozens of people live in our home. So over the span of time, I've, I've tried to have a relationship with God myself and help other people do the same. And I've reached a conclusion out of those things. And that is that death precedes life. That, the, uh, that without there being a death, there's no way to have a uh, dynamic living relationship with someone. This is an interesting idea. Marriage, perhaps, could be the, the, the most obvious example, but I think it's all obvious, really. Like, you know this, don't you? That if you're going to have a long-term relationship with somebody, an intimate relationship, not just a functional relationship, you're going to have to die to some things inside of you in order for you to engage in that relationship, right? If you go in self-centered, thinking only about yourself, and that this is just about self-fulfillment, they're not going to hang around for very long. 
and they probably shouldn't. That if you're going to have a relationship with somebody, the prerequisite to that relationship is you're going to have to die to your assumptions, your pride, your entitlement, or, or what you think your rights are. It's the only way to have a relationship. Now, it's frustrating that you have to come to church to hear that. That when you watch a movie, uh, that doesn't seem to be going on. It seems that the way that you have a relationship is uh, you meet somebody and there's something attractive about them, the opposite of what we read in Isaiah 53. And, uh, you know, your, your, your heart starts to pump or whatever, and it's, and it's, just, it's just this emotional moment of connection. And the Bible says, well, that, that might be a first impression. But the way that you're going to have a loving relationship with somebody is to figure out how to let go of who you are. And only in that are you going to have a relationship with them. So this is what's remarkable about Jesus. Him dying to his rights and position. Imagine the living God... So desiring to have a relationship with us, he empties himself of his status, of his rights, of his position in heaven, comes down. You know, it's like us coming to live among ants, just to hang out, have a relationship with them. That's what he did. And then he absorbs all of our wrongdoing. We call that forgiveness. Where... Uh, there's things that we did that broke relationship with him. And so he looks at us and he says, there's no way that you're going to make up for all you've done against me. Just even ignoring me is already a violation of who I am. I'm the living God. I created you. I'm letting you breathe right now. And that you would ignore me is not right. But what I'm going to do, since you can't make up for all that, I'm just going to absorb it onto myself. I'll take care of it. I'll pay that penalty so that I can have a relationship with you. This is shocking. No God does this. Now, think about somebody famous. Think about somebody with lots of power and position. What do they use that power and position for? Is it to lay their life down for somebody else? No. I've only met uh, like one Mildly famous person. I don't know why I, did. I don't get out much or something. But I was, uh, I was actually, I was in New York City and at a restaurant. And uh, it wasn't Jackie Chan, because that would have been like really cool. It was the guy who like was a sidekick. I don't even remember his name anymore. Chris Tucker? Okay. I met him. <laughs> you can touch me. I, I shook his hand. I know, right? And, uh, and I remember he, he walks into the, into the restaurant and he has an entourage. Like he is dressed perfectly. And he has these people around them with, you know, stuff in their ears. And they're whispering things to each other. And when he comes in, it's an event. Like I have, I have now arrived. And he condescended to shake my hand. Yes, I've recognized you, O oh lowly one. 
and my eyes have, you know, cast upon you only for a minute because I'm going to get bored already. And then I'm just going to move on. Like, that's what, that's what people with power do. He, he behaved, I suppose, appropriately. And Jesus does the opposite of that. He empties himself of power, absorbs our sin, simply to have a relationship with us, no other agenda going through his mind. This is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Perhaps foolish. But beautiful. And he, so he understood that the only way for us to know him, to have a relationship, is if he would die. Are you connecting this now? Dying is the prerequisite to a loving relationship. I double dare you to prove me wrong. It's always true. You might have a functional relationship, but a real intimate caring for one another can't happen unless somebody dies. Not necessarily physically, but for sure the giving up of their rights and status and pride. Now, it gets you know, worse that not only does Jesus die and kind of make a fool of himself, but then he expects us to do the same in order to complete the relationship. This is how it's described in 1 Peter 2. It'll be on the screen. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Can you imagine? Have you ever been, you know, just no defense? Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, absorbed all of our rebellion and relationship-breaking behavior. He just absorbed that and didn't hold it against us. So that we might die to sins and live to righteousness, right relationship. That's why he did it. So what this tells us is that a love relationship with God and others is birthed out of self-denial, and there's no way around it. You know, it, it's interesting when I listen to, to people talk, they go, you know, why do I not have very many friends? Why is my spouse upset with me? Why do I feel distant from God? I mean, I try to pray now and then, and and every once in a while, I read my Bible, and it just makes no sense to me. I don't care about people who lived thousands of years ago. It makes no sense to me why he wants me to know that. And I, I don't get why I'm not experiencing the relational fulfillment that I think I deserve to have. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll maybe talk to a therapist and understand that maybe our ways of, of relating were birthed in our family of origin issues and and that there was a certain pattern there that we've adopted or reacting against, and, and we'll make some, some, some great insights. But what the Bible says is that the primary reason why you would struggle in relationships, including your relationship with God, is simply one reason only. You're not sufficiently dead. That's the reason. Isn't this shocking? 
Like, that's the conclusion. It's not learning how to say I statements or reflective listening or being empathic or you're just not dead enough. Like, that's, that's what he says. So listen to this. If you struggle to know the reality of God, it's maybe, and, and know him, it's maybe you're being blinded by your own egotism and pride. And that as you would humble yourself, you would see him for who he is. What if that's the real problem? And I offer to you that this is what the Bible teaches. That the primary problem in our life is learning how to die well. And as we would learn how to die, we would find ourselves knowing God and in relationship with him and with others. So that was point one. Point number two, and there's only two points. What gives us the courage to live this way? If that's the way into relationship is through self-denial and humility, putting others ahead of ourselves, absorbing their issues, their sin, if that's, if that's the way into relationship, how do we find the courage to do this? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. If we die with him, we will also live with him. So let's just, let's just unpack that, and then we'll talk about how this gives us hope. So uh, uh, Jesus died for us. He emptied himself of his pride, absorbed our sin, so that we could have a relationship with him. Now, he died for us. But let's use a human example. If you're in a relationship with somebody and all you do is die for them, do you have a relationship with them? If all you ever do is give them money, give them your time, give them a listening ear, just care about them, only focus on them, is that a relationship? I suggest that it's not. That the relationship isn't complete unless they also die. They have to ask you questions and not just focus on themselves. They have to care about what you're going through. They also have to let go of their self-centeredness in order to have a relationship with you. And when that occurs, you now have a reciprocal relationship, and that's healthy, right? Well, the same is true in our relationship with God. He can die for our sins, rise from the dead, uh, do all of his part, but there is one thing that remains. Will you die for him? He died for you. But there won't be a relationship with him unless you die also. I get that this is hard to hear, but I don't see a way around it. If I, if I come to God on my terms, only for what I can get from him, I call the shots. I will always leave my relationship with God disappointed and disillusioned and wondering whether he really even exists at all. But the real problem is not on his side, it's on our unwillingness to empty ourselves of our pride, humble ourselves and do what he says and have a relationship that's based on his terms and not ours. You follow me on this? 
I mean, I listen just in my own brain, let alone listening to anybody else. In the moment my life doesn't go well, I'm sure it's his fault. And I'm, I'm beginning to learn that maybe the problem isn't on his end, it's on mine. And the reason why I don't know him, I can't see him or be connected to him, is because I'm so full of myself, there's no room for him in my heart. So, point number one, in order to have a relationship with God, we die with him. But then there's this second point that is remarkable. It says if we die with him, we will also live with him. Now, um, this whole death thing is a little bit hard to swallow. And God is kind and he understands that. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove to you that I'm on the other side of death, of you dying to your pride and rebellion and of me dying on behalf of your pride and rebellion. I'm going to show you that if you actually engage in this death experience, that there's going to be something on the other side. And my proof of that is physically rising from the dead. And then I'm going to have 500 people bear witness to my resurrection so that when it's time for you to die or when it's time to receive my death of you, you will know that in that moment of vulnerability and self-sacrifice and self-denial and surrender, you will know that on the other side of that death is a resurrection life. And I have demonstrated it to be true, not in some uh, psychological, therapeutic, inspirational way, but I physically rose from the dead to prove that I'm on the other side of your surrender. And this is the hope that I give you. Not a theoretical hope, a practical hope that I am living today and demonstrated by, the, by my presence in my people. I remember when I came to Christ. I'm an 11-year-old kid. And I know for a fact that my heart was changed. I know it. I woke up the next morning and I was different on the inside. Because that resurrected Christ came by his spirit into my dead heart and made me new in him. This is remarkable. Nobody talks like this. Nobody does this except Jesus Christ. In my teens, I remember hearing a story uh, about a man named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary uh, just a, a in, the, in the 1950s. <clears throat> and uh, I remember hearing this story of him. He went with four of his friends to Ecuador to share this good news of death and resurrection with some people who had never heard of Jesus Christ. They were, uh, they lived uh, 
uh, remotely. They had no outside influence, and they wanted it that way. The nickname of this tribal group was the uh, Aukas, which was a, a word meaning savage. They didn't want any relationship with anybody. And so Jim Elliott and his friends, they knew this about this people. And so they flew in with a plane and circled above where this tribe lived, and they would drop presents down. Pretty smart. Just kind of soften the soil a little bit. And so they'd drop presents down, and that, but eventually, they landed the plane and sought to build a relationship with these people in the hope of giving them the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, it went well for a short amount of time, and the, the, uh, this tribe ended up killing these five missionaries. Uh, physically dead. When Jim Elliott uh, left he took to go to this tribe, he was married. He'd been married for three years, and he left his wife and small daughter behind. The wife's name was Elizabeth Elliott. And when she uh, heard of his death, of course, mourning, but hear this, two years later, she went to that tribe with her daughter, her toddler daughter, to bring, to complete the work that her husband had started to bring the good news of the gospel to those people. And she ministered to the murderers of her husband and led them to Christ. It's remarkable. Imagine doing that. She has a quote that I think summarizes this death and life idea. This is what she says. Of one thing, I am perfectly sure. God's story never ends with ashes. Would you please hear this? You will never have the courage to die for someone else. You will never have the courage to humble yourself before God unless you believe in the resurrection of the dead. It won't be worth the risk. But we have a promise that is verified in history that God's story never ends in ashes. It never ends in death. It always ends in life. But the only way to receive that life is to humble ourselves, willingly die, and trust him to bring new life. The resurrection uh, is Jesus' promise that death never has the last word. But for love to win, death must always have the first. This is the irony in the offense of the Christian message. Yeah, resurrection from the dead, whatever that means. Yeah. But in order for death to not have the last word, it must have the first. And the only ones who receive the life of God must first die with him before they can live with him. And maybe the reason why we struggle is because we're unwilling to die. And so we want him to prove even more of his resurrection. And he says, I've given more than enough proof. 
by rising from the dead and by depositing my spirit in my followers. And you listen to stories that uh, you know, Leonie Hall showed in that video. He is alive and he's a healing, powerful God. And the only barrier between us and him is our willingness to die. Trusting that life is on the other side. So while Jesus' death and resurrection might look foolish and insulting, it is our means to an eternal relationship of peace and joy with him. And so what might look foolish in the world's eyes is actually the wisest thing we could ever do. Jim Elliott, the missionary who died before his wife came, this is what he says, and this is what we'll close with. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you try to fight for your life and for your rights and for what you think, it's, it's, it's a fool because you'll never be able to keep that. But if you die, you will gain what can never be taken from you, a living, dynamic relationship with the living God. <clears throat> there are times when... Uh, when I feel insulted and I feel like God is asking too much of me. And there's only one thing that keeps me sane. Uh, I'll know you forever. And any cost in this life is irrelevant knowing that I can spend eternity with you. You are my prize, and you are my reward. And any offense that comes my way in this life is a gift from you to aid in the death of my sinful, selfish self that I could be found holy in you for eternity. Bring it on. If that's what it takes to set me free from my fleshly self, I invite the offense. I let myself be insulted so that I can be set free for the joy and privilege of knowing and being known by the living God. Communion team, worship team, I'd like to pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll worship together. Father, I feel struck with the idea can we trust you with our life? Can we trust you with our life? We think that we know how to have fun. We think we know what's best for us. We, we think that we have this thing all figured out. But the one thing that demonstrates that we don't would be our willingness to let go, to surrender, to empty ourselves of our opinions, and our pride and demandingness and control. So Father, would you come right now in this moment and give us the grace to die well, that we could receive the life of Jesus Christ. Amen.